Hey church, we've had a question come in for our Mark by Request series from one of our junior youth. And their question is around Mark chapter 9 and the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And they want to know, why is this crazy story in the Bible and what can we learn from it? They also want to know, why did the disciples ask, why did the religious leaders say that Elijah has to return before the Messiah and what did Jesus' response mean? Good morning, church. My name is Rosa and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. The Transfiguration of Jesus After six days, Jesus took Peter and James along with him and led them privately up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his outer garments dazzled, an exquisite white, a sort of which an earthly tanner can't bleach. And Elijah, along with Moses, appeared before them and began speaking with Jesus. Peter replied and motioned to Jesus, Teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't understand what to say, but they were overcome with fear. Then a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That very moment, though they looked around, they could no longer see anyone but Jesus with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he commanded them to tell no one the story of what they saw until the Son of Man got up from the dead. So they kept the story to themselves, debating what it meant to get up from the dead. They asked him, saying, Is it because our scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus affirmed, Yes, Elijah does come first and restores all things, and how it is written for that Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be brought to nothing. But I tell you that even Elijah came, and they did to him what they wanted, just how it is written for him. Good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be back um, from Lord Howe Island, where I spent 10 weeks of ministry, and to be once again preaching uh, amongst our family, even though we're not in the midst of the place, we are watching on TV. And for all those others who may be watching, it's a joy it's about to come back and preach. Um, we're going to start with prayer as we look at our next question that's been asked by one of our congregation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel. We thank you that you provide us with uh, a word that clearly helps us understand the centerpiece of Jesus in our lives. Help us this morning to listen and to let your word shape who we are and how we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sports commentators will look back on an Olympic road race or a football match and they'll speak of the turning point of the game, of the event. Uh, the turning point is the point at which the outcome becomes clear because of what has happened. Historians refer also to events as turning points in history, events that have rocked and transformed human society such that the world is forever changed. I only have to say COVID-19 and you know what I mean. Or the invention of the internet, which has transformed our lives in ways unthinkable a generation ago. But I would argue that there's a much earlier event that was most significant turning point in human history. When the great divide between heaven and earth 
God and humanity was crossed in the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. Still some 2,000 years after Jesus ascended to glory, he is the object of debate and devotion, the focus of wars and worship. Whoever you are or whatever you believe, one thing you can't do is ignore Jesus. But Jesus' own ministry had a key turning point. Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospel all record this same turning point. It has three elements. There is the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the great promised one of God. The second thing is we see that Jesus explains this Messiahship, this him being the Christ, as being the suffering servant Christ, not some sort of messianic Jedi knight warrior type. And thirdly, is the confirmation of these truths through the words of the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now transfiguration refers to the brief moment in time and space when Jesus' humanity was lifted so the full glory of the eternal sun was visible. It's like lifting a lampshade off a very bright light. It suddenly is startling and your eyes are blinded. But this morning it will be to Mark's account of Jesus' transfiguration that we will turn so that we might answer the questions raised by one of our members. Let me summarise those questions. What's going on in this unusual event? What are the Elijah and Moses references about? And finally and importantly, what's our takeaway? What's its relevance for today? Well, this event was indeed a spectacular mountaintop experience for Jesus a confirmation by his eternal father that he was much loved and that he was on track with the divine salvation plans. It also would ultimately prove to be a mountaintop experience for the three disciples. Peter, writing of this event many years later in his second letter, writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Of course, many of us watching today have had our own spiritual mountaintop experiences, our personal turning points. I, of course, refer to the time when the truth about Jesus' identity and generosity dawned upon us when God's glorious light shone into our soul and we experienced grace forgiveness and the filling of the spirit oh what a spectacular joyous day but you cannot live on the mountaintop it's important to note that Mark records Jesus also quickly descends from the mountain of glory to the valley of grief. From the divine presence to demonic possession. From divine delight to human desperation. Their experience on the mountain and then back into the valley is also ours. 
the valley between our conversion and our consummation when we are raised to be with Christ for all eternity can be a place of conflict, of chaos, of confusion, of catastrophe and corruption. In our family of faith, we actually have, as part of our community at Fig Tree, people whose lives are touched and at times deeply troubled by pain, disease, dementia, depression, temptation, abuse, addiction, accident, anxiety, loneliness, loss, blindness, financial stress, and the list goes on and on. Because we who live in the Christian community are not exempt We don't have a hedge around us that keeps us from pain and heartache. All of us have been to the mountaintop of grace, but daily we live in the valley of grief. How are we to live and thrive in this valley where disaster, disease, demons, disobedience and death seem to always hold final sway? Well, a key aspect of the answer is to be found in the mountaintop experience of Jesus his transfiguration, a turning point in his story. And let me say this clearly. If we don't get Jesus' person and purpose correct, we will not get our own lives correct. So let's turn to the text of Mark and see how it reveals both the dizzy and wonderful truths of heaven and the dozy and wacky ideas of humanity. Firstly then, heaven on earth a window on divinity. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John along with him and he led them privately up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them and his outer garments dazzled an exquisite white of a sort that an earthly tanner can't bleach. And Elijah, along with Moses, appeared before them and began speaking with Jesus. What a mind-blowing scene. For a brief moment, the shutters that bar vision into glory were flung open. Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, was seen as he truly is, dazzling, exquisite white. Mark underscores that this was no homo brightness, This was a supernatural heavenly white beyond any earthly replication. John, another eyewitness, records, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. But the scene becomes even more extraordinary and fascinating as two residents of glory appear with Jesus. In the past, God spoke to and Elijah, along with Moses, appeared before them and began speaking with Jesus. Why Elijah and Moses? Well, it's no accident that the final paragraph of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 4-6, refers to both these spiritual giants. Moses as the great lawgiver and Elijah as the prophet who will preach the law, calling for repentance. And all of this within the context of the end time, the dawning of the kingdom of God. It is this 
kingdom which is breaking in with Jesus, the king, via his signs and his wonders and his spectacular preaching. With Jesus, we are at the turning point of history. Now is the time of prophetic fulfillment. Shadows become substance. It's not an accident that it was only Moses and Elijah who spoke with God on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. But now these great giants of history speak with Jesus on the mountain, the Lord of glory in human dress. Old partners representing law, prophets and fulfilment reunited and in this context discussing the promised events of salvation, Jesus' humiliation, his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. Events Jesus had just explained were his destiny in Mark 8.33. The scene confirms the spectacular declaration of Hebrews 1. In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. With the coming of Jesus, heaven came to earth and the end of the ages was ushered in. The glory of Jesus' transfiguration shines through the darkness of our world and it assures us of heaven's reality. This window into heaven also points us to our participation in eternity with all the saints, past, present and future. Well, in the midst of our insecure world, where fortunes wax and wane, we frail, fragile and at times fearful people need to recall this window into heaven. The assurance of promises fulfilled and of glory to be entered. We experience the extremes of life, the heights of happiness and the depths of despair. We experience the love of family gatherings and the loneliness of lockdown. Right now, as you look at this screen, there'll be some of you enjoying mountaintop experiences. The Olympics are on, lockdown, wow, great. While others are walking through valleys of darkness and despondency, desperate for human touch and conversation and community with family and grandkids. In all of these experiences of life, Satan will seek to use the Zoom control. He wants to magnify the joy or the despondency so that we see nothing else and therefore we lose our bearings. Christ no longer is the centre of our perspective. But this is where this window into heaven can assist us. It can cancel the zoom control. It can enable us to pull back and see the end from the difficult or delightful situation we find ourselves in. It can keep us from self-pity and self-indulgence. It sets our lives in both salvation history and eternity. 
It can bring us back to Jesus Christ, our Lord, amidst both happy distractions and sad discouragements. It reminds us he is the turning point of history, the touchstone of reality. But do we get it? Does Jesus' person and purpose transform our daily choices and priorities? Do we keep our focus on the true Jesus, not one of our own making? Clearly, Jesus' disciples didn't get it at first. They were distracted and confused. So we move from the sublime to the ridiculous. We move from heaven on earth, a window into divinity, into humanity's voice, a window into dullness. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Mark comments, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. You've got to love Peter. He's a real boots and all sort of guy. Never short for something to say. But as we see from Mark 8.33, he rebukes Jesus for speaking about his suffering and death. He ignores the rising of the death altogether. Peter gets it terribly wrong. So wrong, Jesus needs to publicly rebuke him for thinking like people and not like God, for being rooted in the earth and not fixed on God's purposes in glory. And here Peter's at it again, as Mark himself tells us with his little aside. Looking back on his words, we may be tempted to say, what was Peter thinking? But I encourage caution. We may find ourselves wearing his shoes. Why would I say this? Well, we first need to try and capture what Peter is saying. Peter and the disciples cannot get their heads around the fact of the resurrection glory. Why? Because it's preceded by God's alien plan for Jesus' humiliation and crucifixion. If you can't understand Jesus needing to die, then you cannot get your head around resurrection. So Peter effectively wants to capture heaven on earth now. It's as though he was saying, let's make glory permanent. Let's capture the moment by housing it for all to come and see. Peter isn't listening. So once again, he expresses human thinking. Glory without suffering and death. Peter acts like the unknowing child that wants to grab a glorious bush flower and bring it home so they can continue to look at its glory not taking into account the fact the flower will fade and perish and become quite ugly. The heavenly glory Peter wanted to capture for earth is one that would also quickly lose its glory for it would do nothing to bring humanity forgiveness and fellowship with the Father of glory. And now the spirit of Peter lives on today. It lives on in people who want a discipleship that knows little, if anything, of self-denial and suffering. There are those who peddle and those who embrace a gospel which focuses on Christian prosperity, 
not the Christ of the cross. Such may emphasize signs and wonders. We want to see God's glory now. We want to experience the power now. Their target audience is often the upper and middle class and not the working and welfare communities where people struggle. Their focus is happiness. That's central, not holiness. But this idea can also be found in those who persistently complain and whinge at God when life is tough. Those who never turn their shaking fist into an open hand of acceptance. Yes, the scriptures and particularly the Psalms give us permission to to raise our problems with God, as does Job. But at some point, the fist needs to turn into an open hand of submission and surrender. Those who never do that, are persistently angry with God, will never experience that grace. Do any of us, like Peter, want to keep the shutters of heaven permanently open? Do we want to avoid the cross-carrying discipleship of authentic Christ following? If so, then we need to repent. For this isn't the way of Christ Jesus. Be assured, the transfiguration of Jesus was a window into heaven, not an invitation to experience heaven. It was a window of encouragement and education for our journey in the valleys of life, not a window of escape from those valleys. So it was that the window was shut and the shutters closed almost as quickly as they were opened. Let's learn from Peter and his mates. When you don't know what to say, say nothing. Shut up and listen. For as the cloud descended and the momentary glorious window into heaven was closed, when Moses and Elijah were gone, when Jesus was normal again, only one thing remained. What was it? It was the voice of the Father. So let's abandon the ridiculous human notion of heaven on earth and return to the sublime communication of heaven to earth. Heaven's voice, the window to authentic discipleship. Verses 7 to 8, Then a cloud appeared and overwhelmed them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Peter's foolish, dull mumblings are silenced as a cloud of divine presence overshadowed them. As the disciples are covered and distraction of glorious vision removed, their ears are open to hear the voice of Father God. Now, grandparents' um, event is around a month away in September. And Josh McDowell is one of the keynote speakers. Now, we've been ramping up Josh. We've been letting you know about his credentials. Not because we want to build him up in an egomaniac sort of way, but rather so that people might know that he knows what he's talking about. So the Heavenly Father announces the three, to the three bewildered disciples, 
Jesus' credentials. He's the beloved eternal son. He knows what he's talking about. So listen. Indeed, it's significant that when the cloud disappears, Moses and Elijah are gone. The representatives of the law and the prophets are no longer needed. Jesus stands before them as both the fulfiller and the interpreter of the law and the prophets, the scriptures. He is the final and sole bearer of God's revelation. And if you are home listening right now and wanting to know where to find the truth about God and how to be in relationship with him, can I encourage you to listen to Jesus? We would love to send you a free copy of Mark's Gospel. Please get in touch with us. Wherever you are in the world, we will send you one. And read this Gospel about the life of Jesus. Listen to him and see how he is indeed the centre, the turning point of history. Well, the conversation as they descend into the, into the valley that follows reinforces the disciples' need to listen. We read, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Asked Jesus. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. So as the disciples descend back into the valley, where they'll immediately encounter evil, we see ongoing confusion about Jesus rising from the death and questions about Elijah. Their Elijah question is their immediate response to Jesus wanting them to remain silent about the events they've just seen. They knew Elijah had not died and that he'd been taken straight to heaven. They also knew that the teachers of the law, based on Malachi 4, taught that Elijah would come first before the day of the Lord's great salvation event. And having just seen Elijah, they wonder, well, where does Elijah fit into God's plan? He didn't die. Is he coming back? Jesus knows that they are still not hearing the necessity of his the glorious son of man suffering and death. They know what's written about Elijah, but they don't know what's written about the suffering and rejection of the son of man. Jesus then interprets the prophecy concerning Elijah as being fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, a ministry which he underscores with both successful in restoring people to God through his preaching, but also led to his rejection and death at the hands of Herod, recorded for us in Mark 6. Jesus will reinforce in the, next two chap- in the rest of this chapter and in chapter 10, he will reiterate that he will come and die 
before he is raised. He, he is saying to them, listen, there is no glory without suffering. Authentic discipleship flows from those who listen to Jesus. Those who acknowledge Jesus as the centrepiece of all history and human destiny. This and this alone is our vocation. Not to simply hear Jesus, but to listen to him. Jesus is the turning point and the listening point of history. Well, let me conclude. Let's all realise that the scriptures, the law and the prophets are not an end in themselves. Rather, they're a means to bringing Jesus, the Son of God, into clearer and sharper focus. To move him onto centre stage in our lives. So that we might join with Paul in saying, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Today we've been on the mountaintop. And we peered into the window of heaven. But now we will soon descend from this mountain of divine glory into the daily grind of valleys of human experience. An environment where triumphs can quickly turn to tragedies. A society filled with distractions and enticements that demand our attention and allegiance. A world where disaster and disease can potentially lead us to depression and despair. A community that can fill us with happiness and sorrow and gladness and grief. But like the disciples, Peter, James and John, we don't enter this valley alone. No, we face its challenge firstly, knowing heaven is a reality. There's a glory to be revealed, a destination, spectacular. Hope is not a pipe dream. But we also face this valley with Jesus through the ministry of his spirit who's been given to us. The spirit of Jesus that will help us hear and understand the scriptures. Scriptures that keep pointing us to Jesus and radical dependence on him. So the challenge for you and for me today and every day is to listen to and follow Jesus. To let his truth shape how we respond to the broken, sin-soaked society that is the world we daily encounter. Hush. Can you hear the voice echoing across the centuries? It's the voice of the mountaintop. It's the voice of a heavenly father who wants only what is best for us. It still comes and calls to us in the valley to a radical obedience to Jesus. Do you hear it? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will indeed be a listening people. And listening in Jesus' teaching was not just hearing words, but embodying them, letting them shape and fashion who we are.
Lord, may the truths of the Mount of Transfiguration flow through us to others. May we live as those who know Jesus is the Son of Glory, the one who has come, suffered and died for us so that we might have life eternal. May we be willing to take up our cross and to follow him. May we be willing to live radical lives of obedience and not be distracted either by the pains of life or the pleasures of life. And we ask it in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.